Hey everybody, it's Tony, your host here. Just want to invite you to head on over to tonyfletcher.substack.com and subscribe, if you will, so that you can get yourself a weekly newsletter full of news about this podcast, my other podcast, a Substack-only subscribers podcast that's launching in December 2023, and you'll get additional show notes for this episode and other episodes complete with pictures, links, and even video and music if need be. That's tonyfletcher.substack.com. And now, on with the show. Welcome to One Step Beyond, a show about positively engaging with the world outside our door. If you're a new listener, first up, welcome. My name is Tony Fletcher. And second up, this is not a regular episode. And if you're old here, well, age is but a number. And this is also not a regular episode, meaning one in which I conduct an interview with someone about stepping outside their comfort zone, and sometimes doing that interview in the field, as we call it, or, per the last episode, bushwhacking up a mountain in the snow with a guest who takes off his shirt halfway through the climb. No, none of that today, and here's why. Typically, One Step Beyond drops every other Thursday, and that would mean the way the chips have fallen in 2020, Thanksgiving. As at least three quarters of my listenership is in the States, though I'm proud to say the show has been downloaded in 38 countries and counting, that would be a likely recipe for disaster. Even in this awful COVID year, in which I really hope my American listeners are doing the right thing and staying home for Thanksgiving, I don't expect anyone to be rushing to their phones for the latest podcasts this particular Thursday morning. At the same time, regular listeners may know that in what I sometimes call the default world, the one outside this podcast, I am a writer by trade, and my books have included one published memoir with another to come. And those same regular listeners have probably heard me talking on a few episodes now about the trip I took in 2016 with my then-wife and our younger, then, 11-year-old son, whereby we went backpacking round the globe for ten and a half months. Not surprisingly, I wrote about those travels, gradually compiling a series of short stories about our experiences on the road, none of which seem to have dated especially fast, and all of which hopefully reveal or present some universal truths and commonalities. And so, rather than commit a full episode of One Step Beyond This Thanksgiving, I have decided to make this a, let's call it a half episode, by bringing you one such short story, It's Not True, set early in our journey, back in January of 2016, a whole presidency ago. And on that positive note, please join me on our travels as we prepare to go. It's not true, says the youth sitting next to me on the overnight bus that is taking my family from the ancient Moroccan city of Fez to its Saharan border town of Mazuga. I am in a window seat, my wife and young son are bundled up in a row behind me, and I have my earbuds in place, listening to music for just about the first time in our three weeks of travels at the start of a full year's worth of them. The youth I'd place him around 17, 
boarded the bus just a few minutes ago, in the city of Meknes, with what I assume to be his mother and younger brother, who have themselves bundled up together in the row in front. He is wearing a large, bulky, touristic baseball cap, with the slogan COD emblazoned on top, and he has just tapped me on the shoulder to tell me that something is not true. I'm sorry, I say, removing my right earbud, wondering what on earth he could be referring to, given that I am merrily minding my own business. It's not true, he repeats, pointing to my iPad, on which I have the Kindle app open. What it says there, about Africans, it's not true. The book I am reading on Kindle came recommended to me by my Tanzanian friend Protus back in Phoenicia in New York. It's called Africans and Americans Embracing Cultural Differences by Joseph L. Mbelli. Protus, who was able to resettle in the States after an American tourist to Tanzania took a liking to him when Protus worked as a guide on Kilimanjaro and sponsored his college education suggested I pick up a copy after the last of our many lengthy meetings at Mama's Boy, the Phoenicia Town Hall coffee shop, before my family set off on this year of global backpacking. But then Protus informed me that, unfortunately, he hadn't been able to find a group of paying Americans to take on a more sedentary pace up Kili earlier or later on his journey to make his own trip to Tanzania worth his while. As our family's flights were already booked by this point, that would mean no run up Kilimanjaro, which was probably a good thing, but Protus promised to still schedule our time in his country of birth and assign one of his team there as our driver and guide on less taxing adventures. At that final meeting, I had said something about how I would have been fine arranging the schedule on my own, but that, you know, this was Africa. The email that followed hours later, recommending the book Embracing Cultural Differences, confirmed that Protus had registered my insensitive statement. One born, I was all too immediately aware, out of a total lack of personal experience. I had never even set foot on the continent. And Belly had written Embracing Cultural Differences based on his own actual experiences. As a Tanzanian adapting to the States during his graduate studies in Madison, Wisconsin in the 1980s, and then at a small college in Minnesota in the early 1990s, where he introduced courses in post-colonial and third-world literatures. His writing was additionally informed by the reverse culture shock of the white American students he accompanied to his homeland for research. Some of Mbele's observations were delivered with a certain graceful humour. I used to spend time with my fellow African students joking about American ways, he noted in the third sentence of his introduction, we wondered why, for example, the police often arrived at parties to report complaints by neighbours that the music was too loud. What was the purpose of a party, we wondered, if not to have a good time? And how could anyone have a good time if the music was not loud? This was clearly a man after my own young man's heart. But some stated differences were more sombre. The more the Americans talked about hazards in other countries, especially African countries, the more they seemed to imply that the United States was a very safe place, perhaps the safest in the world. I saw these conversations not really as occasions for sharing useful information, but as reinforcements of American propaganda. 
For my part, I was under no such illusions that the US was, quote, the safest place in the world. I'd spent too much of the last few years poring over statistics of our appallingly high murder rate, largely the result of lax gun laws, about which I lobbied our local Republican congressman in person, with absolutely no success. And yet, in my conversations with protas, I had nonetheless, and however unintentionally, implied that all of Africa was somehow unsafe. I had fallen victim to that same American propaganda. Still, these are not the sections I'm reading when the Moroccan youth taps me on the shoulder to say it's not true. I'm reading the following. It is normal for African women attending a class or a public meeting to be breastfeeding their infants at the same time. Africans don't even pay attention to this, let alone think about it. The Africans acknowledge, without any reservation, the child's right to suckle her mother's breast. Coming from a Moroccan perspective, i.e. the youth alongside me, the opinion, it's not true, is, well, true. You're more likely to see the Moroccan king advocate for an entirely free press than see a Moroccan woman breastfeeding in public in this Islamic nation. Outside of the big cities, you're unlikely to even see a Moroccan woman's bare arms. So, once I realise what the youth is referencing, and that, leaving aside his disrespect for his fellow passengers' privacy, that he can read English as well as he can speak it, I take out my left earbud as well, put them on my lap, and think of how to respond. Well, this book is written about American perceptions of Africans, I begin to explain, hoping he will get my drift. I am African says the Moroccan, stopping me right there. And what it says is not true of my people. He's got me, and by extension, the author. A book that aspires to challenge and break down international stereotypes of Africans has inadvertently lumped them all together. Ethiopians and Egyptians, Tanzanians and Tunisians, Malians and Moroccans alike. Later, rereading the book, I would see that in his introduction, Mbele takes pains to stake meaning to his words. There are many cultures in Africa, he admits. Sometimes I use the term Africans to mean only black Africans. Mbele's Africa clearly is that of the sub-Sahara. It does not include those north of the Great Desert. And that, my new travelling companion has just made clear as we take a bus ride south to the same Great Desert, is an error. Yet Mbele's mistake proves to be my own good fortune. I agree with the youth that yes, Moroccans are Africans too, and that nobody, not even a black African author from Tanzania, should attempt to paint an entire continent of over a billion people with the same brush. And with that, having assuaged his grievance, we find ourselves in the midst of a grand conversation. The youth is, indeed, 17 years old. His name is Mahmed. He is clearly well-educated, and he is evidently keen to educate himself further, judging by the questions he begins to pepper me with. The first of them, however, almost comically, plays straight back into the exact sort of international generalisation he has just sought to discredit. Is it true that Americans eat early? Now, this is actually a good one, because my British mother certainly believes they do, and frequently repeats as much to anyone who will listen. 
I remain curious as to how such an admittedly harmless notion becomes perceived as a universal fact. Is it due to the senior citizens who flock to local diners and franchise restaurants for the early bird specials? And what constitutes early? In Spain, especially the big cities like Madrid and Barcelona, sitting down for dinner anywhere before 9pm seems almost juvenile. Yet I grew up in an England where tea, as we called it in my house, was served at 6pm, religiously. Meantime, during my nightclubbing days in New York City, I'd frequently have a meal when the clubs closed after 4am. Whether that counted as an incredibly early breakfast or a ludicrously late dinner is probably not a debate I can solve with Mahmoud. Accepting whatever soft answer I give him, Mahmoud moves us on to a much more important international cultural reference point, namely football. My time in Spain so far, from which we travelled to Morocco by ferry just a week ago, has served as a mildly shocking reminder that the English Premier League does not enjoy total global dominance, and nor should it in a country whose La Liga includes the two best players on the planet. This, by the way, is not open to debate. For the last eight years, either Cristiano Ronaldo of Real Madrid and Portugal or Lionel Messi of Barcelona and Argentina have been voted FIFA's Player of the Year. Mahmed, as with almost everyone else I will meet around the world, sides with Messi, the firm fan's favourite, the finest exponent of the sport on the planet, possibly Pele included in its history. As we travel the world through the rest of 2016, I will learn that the name Messi carries with it as instantly recognisable a resonance and provokes as instant a smile as that of Obama. The Moroccans I've already come to discover on my few days in the country are far more obsessed with football than their country's dire reputation for playing the sport would suggest. On our bus to Fez, we pulled up for a lunch stop at a large cafe where an entire room full of men, and only men, were watching second-tier English football in a cloud of hashish. Recognising that he has a fellow fan alongside him, and a Brit at that, Mahmoud moves on to the English Premier League at last, picking apart in technical detail the nascent managerial styles of the German Jurgen Klopp at Liverpool and the Dutchman Louis van Gaal at Manchester United. Football in the 21st century is a truly international, largely free-trade sport. It is clear Mahmoud knows more about the current standard of English play than I do, and I'm hoping to steer the conversation further towards my own team, Crystal Palace, to see what tactics he recommends our manager pursues, when he pauses briefly, like Messi after a run through the defence that has now opened up the goal mouth before him, thinking quickly how to place the ball in the back of the net. What do you think of Muslims, he asks, but in an almost offhand way, as if he could as easily have been asking me about the latest signing at Chelsea, or Messi casually chipping the goalkeeper rather than driving the ball hard at his feet. Now, I've been expecting this question, not so much from Mahmoud in the here and now, but at some point in our journey, and especially in a Muslim country such as Morocco. And yet, I have not fully prepared an answer. Both nations of which I have citizenship, that is, the USA and the UK, have fought wars in recent years, from Afghanistan to Iraq, that could be seen as anti-Islamic in practice, if not necessarily by design. And Morocco, 
as with all North African nations, endured great suffering at the hands of Christian and Crusader invaders. Additionally, it is surely impossible for educated Muslims, among whose number I would certainly include Yarm Ahmed here, to have ignored the xenophobic bluster of the Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump. I imagine the local media to be full of it, given how Trump's anti-Muslim rhetoric reinforces stereotypes of the USA as a monotheistic, reactionary, closed-minded nation. Rather than a multicultural and largely progressive country, I want to believe it wants to be at heart. But on the other hand, in neighbouring Tunisia just a summer ago, some 38 innocent tourists, 30 of them British, were mowed down on a beach by a lone gunman, one apparently radicalised by events further east along the African coast in Libya and Syria, where ISIS is currently waging its own campaigns of brutal savagery and terror in the fanatical name of organised religion. My westernised Moroccan friend, he of the fashionable baseball cap, love of European football and fascination with American eating habits, has every right to be inquisitive. And I have every right to hedge in return. People are people, I say. I mean, there's over a billion Muslims on the planet, right? I mean, you know we have many in the States. I mean, as with Christians, they're mostly good people. But there are some people who are bad in every religion. Huh? I'm fumbling. Are you Christian? He asks. And this too is a good question. I was raised as one, I explain truthfully, and I continue that way. But I don't believe. I don't practice. I'm not religious, I say. You don't believe in God? Mahmoud is looking intently my way as he asks this. Correct, I say. I don't believe in an all-knowing God. I feel like Mahmoud is waiting for me to qualify that statement, so I do. Mother Nature is my only God. I put it all down to her. Mahmoud digests this. And then he says, slowly and deliberately, I don't know that I am able to not believe in God. It's a convoluted sentence that I find myself thinking about long after we part company, for there are two ways to take it. One is that Mahmed, having been raised a Muslim in a devoutly Islamic nation, simply cannot contemplate there being no God. Such a notion is beyond the purview of his limited life experience. At the same time, I hear Mahmed saying that he is not allowed not to believe in God, which is another thing entirely, suggesting that, Given the opportunity, he would like to explore the possibility to further grapple with the issues of science and religion and how they can coexist in the 21st century world where facts should carry more weight than myths. But he chooses not to elaborate and I choose not to push him on the matter. I am conscious that we are among the only people talking as others strive to sleep on an overnight bus that has not a single spare seat and I'm not sure if it's my responsibility to pursue such a delicate debate in full listening range of them all. Mahmed, for all his self-confidence, and for all that his fellow Moroccans far outnumber us tourists on the bus, perhaps feels the same way. I do ask him more about his own life, and he tells me that his father died three years ago, and that his mother, sitting in front of us, is a wonderful woman 
and that she is treating him and his brother to their first trip into the desert. I sense that maybe they have reached a point of financial security and that this is the boy's reward. Mahmed leans forward to his mother to retrieve a pack of Pringles and as is instinctive for Moroccans, indeed a matter of duty, offers some to me, the visitor. I politely decline. It is late. The bus has only a few more hours before it will deposit us in Mazuga, and I feel the need to try and get at least some sleep. I explain as much, politely, and press play once more on the music on my iPod, a collaboration between Terry Hall, once of the specials, and Mushtaq of Morocco. I don't reopen the Kindle and the book that inadvertently lumps Africans of all colours, creeds, races and nations together. But it does occur to me that, having met such an intelligent and interesting young Moroccan, I would do well to ask if he has email. Well, of course he has email, the question would be whether I can have his address, and to consider an ongoing pen pal relationship. I can't offer college sponsorship, but Mahmoud is the kind of person that our planet's future depends upon if Muslims and Christians are to stop with this fighting, if the vast number of young people in Morocco are to have a greater understanding of Western culture and us of them. It might do him well to have a friend in the States, an older mentor of some sort. But hey, we're not yet a month into our trip. Indeed, we're only into our first week outside of Europe, and I'm almost certain to come across other teenagers of equal intellect and intrigue on our travels, right? Wrong. Though there are any number of fascinating conversations in store for me, many of them conducted, like this, in the suspended animation of confined travel, confirming the importance of taking public transport. I will meet no one quite like Mahmed. I fall asleep. I presume he does likewise. And when we all wake up and groggily disembark at Mazuga, the night not yet having fully succumbed to dawn, he and his mother and brother head one way in the grey light. And we find the host from the dar we are going to stay at on the border of the desert to take us in a different direction. It seems improper to ask for contact details in front of Mahmoud's mother, as if that might get him into trouble. I have missed my opportunity. I rue it, still. Almost five years later, I wonder what has become of him. Whether he went to college and travelled abroad. Whether he found the place in the modern world suitable to his calling and intellect whether he sends money home from wherever he is to support his mother, or whether, perhaps, he still lives at home supporting his mother. Most of all, I wonder whether he is yet able to not believe in God. This episode of One Step Beyond was written, produced and narrated by Tony Fletcher. Incidental music in this episode is by Noel Fletcher. The theme song is by Madness, used with permission, and the logo is by Mark Lerner. To subscribe to a newsletter or just reach out via email, contact One Step Beyond at ijamming.net. 
ijawming.net. And of course, you can find us on social media. Just search One Step Beyond with Tony Fletcher and we should come up on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. And you can find all of these links in the show notes. One Step Beyond is available on just about every podcast platform known to man and most likely a few that have yet to be discovered. And it's hosted by Acast. If you like what you hear, please hit the subscribe button and or leave a positive rating and or review. Special thanks to Radio Kingston for airing these episodes and for supplying studio space when not under lockdown. Until next time, stay safe and stay active.